Well, welcome all you wiretappers. I'm back here in the studio, Gangland Wire, with our good friend from down under, Tony Toth. Tony, welcome. Glad to be here. All right, Tony, it's good to have you, and uh, I understand that it's winter down there. Well, it's summer here. <laughs> it always seems kind of weird. I'm talking to a dude in Australia sitting here in Kansas City. Live. Yes. Magic. It's, uh, freezing magic of the internet and it's morning down there just before you go to work in your office and it's evening here just as i'm getting ready to get off yeah anyhow so we're going to talk about bruce cutler guys you know tony is our expert on mob lawyers <clears throat> and we've done frank regano and uh, uh roy Cohn. um did we do another one or just those two oscar goodman oscar oscar goodman how could i forget oscar goodman the guy that cross-examined me and Oscar Goodman. So they've been fun shows or fun stories, and, and nobody really talks about in these other uh, podcasts out here. I don't see them talking about the mob lawyers, and and they play an important part in mob history, a huge part in mob history. And some of them, policemen always think that they're part of the mob. Now Bruce Cutler, he he may have been. He actually was kicked off a case because, and I'll let Tony go into that. He knows more about that than I do. But Bruce Cutler it was famous because of John Gotti, and he was and he played the cameras too, and he played to an, uh, like an audience in a theater all the time too. So Tony, well, tell us a little bit about how Bruce Cutler got his start. Well, Bruce was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1948. Uh, his father was a detective turned lawyer. That sounds familiar. Yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> he he went to Hamilton College in Brooklyn. Holy Prep, uh, where he had been an aggressive linesman uh, on the football team and a champion wrestler, which kind of explains his pugnation <laughs> courtroom style, which I'm going to go into later. He graduated from Brooklyn Law School in 1974, and he worked as a trial attorney with the Brooklyn DA from 1974 to 1981. And then he joined private practice with Barry Slotnick, he went to work for Barry Slotnick. Now, Barry Slotnick's, is, Barry Slotnick's famous for representing, representing Bernard Getz, the uh, vigilante subway shooter in the 1980s. He's one of the premier criminal defense lawyers in New York. Um, now, Cutler met John Gotti in early 1985 while he was working for Slotnick. And in April 1986, Gotti went on trial for in Brooklyn on racketeering charges bought by a zealous prosecutor. Now, between the time that Cutler met Gotti and the commencement of the trial in early 1986, Gotti had ascended to become head of the Gambino crime family after the brazen murder of Paul Castellano in front of Sparks Steakhouse in late 1985. We all know about that. So Cutler was now representing possibly the most powerful gangster in the United States. Well, he was definitely the most powerful in New York, possibly the U.S. The racketeering trial in Brooklyn was very highly publicized, not only because of Gotti's high profile, but also because of Cutler's tenacious and controversial defense that turned the trial into an absolute circus. And this made, made Bruce Cutler almost as famous as his client during the trial. Now, Cutler had a uh, powerful courtroom presence because he had this bulky physique and he wore expensive double-breasted suits similar to those worn by his client. 
Um, but what made him stand out the most was his theatrical, loud, and unconventional behavior in the courtroom that you were talking about before. Now, in his opening statement in this particular trial, Cartlock viciously attacked the government, and then he picked up a copy of the indictment. He held it up high, and then he compared it to a stew made from bad meat and vegetables and <laughs> tossed it into the trash basket in full view of the jury. Their eyeballs nearly popped out. Uh, it was like purely theatrical and it left everyone stunned in the courtroom. No one's seen that before. <laughs> now, the government called 78 witnesses. Most of them had unsavory pasts, as you'd expect in a mob trial. And he was especially brutal in his cross-examination of these witnesses to the point where tabloids in New York called them brucifixions. Now, Cutler was like a cat playing with a mouse. Uh, he bullied insulted and ridiculed the witnesses one by one. For example, he had one witness admit to pistol whipping a priest and killing three drug dealers after making the deal with the government to testify against Gotti. You can imagine how that went down with the jury. Oh, yeah. Uh, Carlo also influenced the jury with all these awkward questions. Uh, for instance, he accused one witness of photographing other men committing forcible sex acts on his wife. Now, the witness denied it, but the damage was done because the jury just can't unhear something. Yeah, uh, That would happen again and again and again during the trial. The prosecution would strenuously object to <laughs> countless questions and ask for them to be stricken from the record, but they can't be as easily stricken from the jurors' minds. Uh, this brash and unconventional style of defense really endeared him to God in and the other mobsters because it mirrored their tough guy image, but it really angered the judge and the prosecutor. Things are out of control in that courtroom. Now, Carlo wasn't content to just go after the witnesses. He went after the prosecutor as well. Um, he insinuated that the prosecutor had been arranging for a witness to obtain drugs and prescriptions for codeine and Valium, and that she offered her underwear to a witness as a reward for his testimony. Now, even though that probably wasn't true, it really rattled this prosecutor and it really threw her off balance. Ultimately, the jury acquitted Gotti in this particular trial. It later emerged that one of the jurors had been bribed, but it doesn't appear that Cutler had anything to do with that. Cutler emerged as uh, somewhat of a celebrity after the enormous publicity generated by this trial, but he was only getting started. There was a lot more to come. In 1990, uh, John Gotti was before the court to answer assault and conspiracy charges. Uh, prosecutors contended that Gotti commissioned the Westies, the gang from Hell's Kitchen, that Irish gang from Hell's Kitchen, to shoot a union official called John O'Connor after he ordered the trashing of a Gambino-affiliated restaurant in downtown Manhattan. In some kind of a union dispute using non-union labour or something to that effect. Uh, now, the prosecution played tapes to the jury in which Gotti and his co-conspirators could be hear, could be heard plotting the assault on O'Connor. You can hear something to the effect of Gotti saying, bust him up and giving him, a, giving him an address. Now, Cutler called the case a modern-day vendetta or persecution, a witch hunt, and he 
challenged the validity of the tapes. Now, he had the principal investigator admit under cross-examination that the tapes were so garbled that he had to listen to them up to 30 times before managing to create a transcript for the court. He succeeded in shaking confidence in the tapes that were obviously of poor quality as most bugs are. Yeah. And he argued the prosecution had rewritten the transcripts to fill the government's theory of the case. Carla demolished the credibility of the prosecution witnesses who consisted of ex-mobsters who'd make who'd made sweetheart deals with the government in return for their testimony. As usual, he had them reiterate their fast criminal credentials in front of the jury and made them look like the absolute stun of the earth. He had one witness admit under cross-examination that he signed the deal with the government to testify against Gotti after suffering the misery of 17 months in solitary confinement. In other words, the government coerced him into testifying. Yeah. Gotti was acquitted. It was a stunning victory and he... That's when he started to earn the nickname uh, Teflon Gong. Yeah. But the government was a bit, wasn't about to give up. Uh, <laughs> in late 1990, Gotti was again indicted for racketeering and a whole slew of other crimes. However, to everyone's surprise, uh, the presiding judge took the unusual step of removing Cutler uh, as Gotti's defense counsel. After the prosecutors labeled Cutler, and a few other lawyers on the case, house counsel to the Gambito crime family. Now, the rationale was that Cutler could be called as a witness, so he couldn't probably represent his client. It's worth noting that in the end, Cutler wasn't called to testify in the trial. It's likely that the prosecutors, who obviously despised him, uh, just found a way to conveniently get rid of him. Cutler was very angry and as we I know, bet. he's very outspoken. He was later found guilty of violating a federal judge's gag order, prohibiting defense attorneys, prosecutors from talking to reporters about the trial. He was reprimanded for penalties by the Bar Association in New York. I think he was suspended for a period. Now, in that particular trial, the, the big Gotti trial in 1992, he was replaced by Miami-based defense attorney Albert Krieger. As we know, in 1992... Gotti was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Now, the question, the big question is, and maybe you can weigh, on, weigh in on this, was Gotti disadvantaged by the fact that Cutler was no longer representative? I think he was. Now, even though Albert Krieger was an excellent defense attorney, one of the best in the country, he generally played by the rules and rarely punched below the belt like Cutler. The truth of the matter is, Cutler's bullying, ridiculing, and insulting of witnesses was effective. Now, that's not what they teach in law school, but it's true. It's Although true. Although these tactics don't work all the, these tactics don't work all the time. For instance, when Bruce Cutler was representing uh, music producer Phil Spector in his murder trial in Los Angeles in two thousand seven. Uh, these tactics didn't work as well as they did in these mob trials in New York because I think juries are less sympathetic to say a mob star turned <laughs> informant who gets savaged in the witness box as opposed to say an eyewitness or a sexual assault victim. Also, a lot of judges just don't tolerate that kind of 
theatrical displays in the courtroom. Now, apart from some high-profile trials here and there, Carla never really regained the that kind of infamy, infamy and publicity that he had during the years that he represented Gotti. In the early 1990s, apparently he represented a member of the Chicago outfit. You know a bit more about that, Gary? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. And and Bruce Culler, I mean, you ask about that, uh, would he have been as effective, more effective than the lawyer that Gotti got? You know, he was a master at discrediting these witnesses and he would he would go after him and i'll tell you a little bit about some quotes from what he did in chicago but that and mob guys the people that testify against him the ones that make sense out of the tapes that make sense out of the other evidence that they get because that's you got to have a storyteller you got to have somebody that that verifies that you know now that was his voice on the tape and yeah this is what he meant when he said that Otherwise, you're not going to get it. And, and they had Sammy the Bull Gravano. That would have been a pretty big uh, uh, fence, a pretty high bar to get through because uh, Gravano was pretty unshakable. So that would have been, it would have been hard. Now, if anybody could have shaken him, it would have been Cutler because Cutler knew where all the bodies were buried. Uh, of course, then Sammy had about 18 of them out there, I think, that he admitted to. But uh, that would have been a really interesting confrontation in the courtroom, Sammy the Bull and Bruce Cutler, because they would have known each other. Um, because he that that's how didn't he get in trouble? <laughs> then they pick him up on a wire at uh, Gotti's social club or something. And that one of the reasons that they said he was too close and was going to be a witness because they had him on a wire. Yes, uh, Gotti was caught on uh, caught in a bug saying that he complained about. Cutler legal fees and how they're too high. And he also said something to the effect that he was painting cash under the table. Uh, okay. I knew somehow yeah. there's something on a yeah. wire that, that discredited yeah. uh, Cutler that w would make him maybe part of it. So anyhow, but that would have been a, a classic confrontation, Bruce Cutler and Sammy the Bull Gravano, Mr. Cool. If, if he could have kept his cool with Bruce Cutler, he might have been all right, but that was Cutler's thing. Now, you know, in Chicago, it's my understanding now, you know, you know, you never know for sure, but it's my understanding that they did get hold of Gotti and ask permission to hire Cutler, which kind of comports with some things I saw out of Kansas City. They realized that they needed to call Chicago and see if they could talk to Lefty Rosenthal, for example, directly. So if you, you Cutler would have been owned by five families or by Gotti, just like Lefty Rosenthal was owned by Chicago, so everybody knows that protocol. And they they would have got hold of of uh, Gotti and and asked permission, and he hired him. And, and a guy that he that hired him was Solid D De Laurentiis. Uh, they call him Solid D, who who will go on to be the I think he's the supposedly the head of the outfit today. This this trial was a good ship lollipop trial. It was a a, a crew primarily of I believe uh, Wings Carlisi and. Uh, a couple other guys, I can't remember, oh, Rocky and Felice. And, and these guys were loan sharks and gamblers, and they were extorting money from uh, bookies, and the bookie wouldn't pay, and they set one of them up to be murdered. Now, if you guys want to go back, uh, I've got that whole story. Uh, it's the uh, trial of Bobby Salerno is the title, I believe, of the podcast episode I did, so you can, you can hear all about that trial. But we didn't really talk about Bruce Cutler. Uh, 
the, uh, this I got hold of that guy who uh, helped me out with that, who attended that good ship lollipop round. He just said, you know, he was just full of histrionics and and wasn't he didn't think he was really that effective because he was just all over the place. And and I looked up some more information about it, and and this guy told me that the the judge had to admonish him several times, many times over. He's almost ready to like you know hit him with contempt. Um, before the end of the trial, and and he I called. Uh, there, there's an article in the paper there. He called the uh, the main witness, a guy named B.J. Jehoda, who buried them all. Uh, he called him a fink and a rat and all that kind of stuff. Uh, just tore into him. Said he was uh, uh, a swindler and you know no good. And and he just that was what he was noted for was ripping these mob informants mob turncoats apart which is pretty easy to do the prosecutor guy named miss mars was mr professional but but he did accuse cutler to the judge and for other judge or to the judge said he's just playing to an audience out here he's not really doing legal work and and as you know you know being a good lawyer is really not about yelling and trying to intimidate people it's more about knowing the law and, and asking questions that trick trip people up a little bit, not just yelling at them. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Everybody's got, it works, I guess, for some people, but it, it didn't work in Chicago because they all got convicted. And, you know, in his closing arguments, here's what he did. This is a, a coup de grace. It, it's real over-the-top kind of thing. He There's an American flag in every courtroom, right? Probably got an Australian flag in your courtrooms. So he goes to the American flag and he almost wraps himself to the American flag and and he says these these prosecution witnesses have stained our flag with their perjury during this trial. So he was uh, pretty over the top and it was uh, uh, they all got convicted but you know I guess they got their money's worth off. So this guy uh, that attended the trial said that he got to know some of Bobby Salerno for example. He got to know some of the defendants just by talking to them, they were they were out on bond and and they were not real happy with Bruce Cutler. They just thought he was uh, he was just kind of a blustery New Yorker that that and especially you know nobody likes their lawyer when they get convicted anyhow. It's kind of like being a divorce lawyer. Your client or the other the opposing party doesn't like you by the end. So it's, uh, it's and a, that was his Chicago experience. And just to corroborate saying um he in 2006 he represented former nypd detective uh, Louis Eppolito, who was charged with carrying out at least eight contract killings for the oh really I, I didn't know over, he two, did, huh? over two decades and Eppolito was sentenced to life in prison and he accused cutler of botching his case yeah. also as i mentioned before when he represented phil speck he kept bumping heads with Phil Spector and his theatrical, he kept getting reprimanded by the judge for his theatrical displays in the Los Angeles courtroom. So as I said, it probably works in mob trials, but it doesn't work with all trials and probably only works in mob trials in New York, maybe. Maybe some judges yes. yeah. just don't tolerate that in other states. Yeah, but and it wasn't as effective in other trials that he did, definitely. Right. In mob trials, the people that they're trying to discredit are easy, easy to discredit. They've already got this litany of things, and you explained about one, of course, Sammy the Bull, and well, I'd love to have seen him go up against Sammy the Bull. That would have been one heck of a battle there in the courtroom if he could rattle Sammy the Bull and discredit him in front of the jury. 
but you know, the, you know how the prosecutors do they what they do, guys. If you don't know this, and and uh, Tony knows this, what they do is they bring out their witness and then they lead that witness slowly and surely, step by step, through every crime they've ever committed that could ever come up. That's why when they go into witness protection and going to testify, they uh, the deal is if you want to, you want our protection. You have to admit every crime you've ever done, because if they don't catch one, and then the prosecution brings it up during the trial, then you know once a liar, always a liar. So that's uh, uh, yeah, they're pretty smart with that. Yeah, uh, you don't hear much about him these days. Well, he's uh-uh. probably seventy-five years old, uh, probably retired. Uh, he m- he I think must he's be had his day. I haven't seen, I couldn't find anything online about him currently, and I haven't seen anything about him. You don't, you know, and he was, he was in all the, when he was the Teflon Don's lawyer, the man that got the Teflon Don off, he was in, you know, Look, Life, Time, all the magazines, all the newspapers, he was all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, he was such a flamboyant character, and then New York's being the center of the world, they, yeah, yeah. You're gonna get any publicity, you're gonna get it. You do anything in New York, you're gonna get national publicity, and that's that's where he was. I have to wonder what kind of guy he is in his older age. I, I bet you wouldn't want to get in a traffic accident with him. I bet you wouldn't want to have have a road rage incident with Bruce Cutler. Speaking of which, uh, he was in the New York tabloids in 2013. Apparently, it punched a guy in the face. Yeah. In a uh, Manhattan diner. I don't know if you heard about that. <laughs> I didn't hear about that. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. surprise me. He's, he's that kind yeah. of guy. Yeah, that's what they reported. I saw an article about that. But there wasn't <laughs> much else about him. Uh, interesting. Well, this has been great, Tony. I, I really appreciate you helping out with these mob lawyers. We've got some more to go through, and and we will, we'll keep working on these until we get them all. That uh, uh, is it, Barry Slotnick. He's not so flamboyant, but he was a good lawyer. He was he he was yes. one of the commission trial. Uh, I can't remember which Webby. Uh, God, I can't remember which one it was, but he represented one of the uh, bosses in the commission trial. I know that. I'm not sure which one, but I know he represented Joe Colombo, maybe. But before yeah. this was this was before the commission trial, and uh, yeah, he he represented. He, his name always comes up, but I'm not sure specifically which trial, which mobs he represented. Yeah, I just, I saw, uh, I was doing a research on the uh, commission trial and he was, you know, doing some kind of a uh, a um, uh, press release or talking to some newspaper people. But I think it was about, uh, uh, Anth- uh, is it Anthony Spiro? That's, uh, yeah, Anthony Spiro. Maybe it was him. But anyhow, so he's, uh, uh, I'll keep at this, Tony. So I appreciate you guys all tuning in. I, uh, you got anything else to add there, Tony? No. All right. That's pretty much it. I hope by now you've heard my six-part series on Jimmy Shagra and the murder of Judge Wood down in uh, El Paso, Texas. That was that was quite a, a trek I went on with that. It took me several months to get that one done. It was it, It's a heck of a story. Uh, and if you haven't heard that, go back and, and listen to all six episodes. It's quite a story. I've got, I was able to interview one of the guys who was one of the smugglers, was took part in one of the biggest smuggling operations that Jimmy Shagra did, where they took a whole freighter of uh, Colombian marijuana, the fine Colombian marijuana, 
uh, up to Boston and up to the Massachusetts uh, coastline off of uh, Massachusetts and, and emptied it out, and he was part of that. And I, had, I was able to interview another guy who was an expert on Charles Harrelson, the uh, father of Woody Harrelson, the famous actor. And, and he had uh, he had a lot of insights into uh, Charles Harrelson and his life, which was one hell of a life. That guy was, was one stone cold killer. So don't forget, I ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And if you've got a problem with PTSD, be sure, and if you've been in the service, be sure and get to the VA website. And if you've not been in the service, why, you can find some help somewhere. If you um, have a problem with drugs or alcohol, which is usually a part of PTSD, why, get hold of our friend Anthony Ruggiano. He's got a, he's a, a drug and alcohol counselor down in Florida, and he's got a hotline on his website. I think it's anthonyruggiano.com. And he's on Facebook, too, or on YouTube, so just... I search for Anthony Ruggiano, and you can see his Facebook uh, uh, page also. So thanks a lot, Tony. Thanks a lot, guys.